Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Board and then Baron Samadhi turns up and I perked I up know. at that point. Jeffrey Holder and yeah. he's really good. Yeah, yeah. There are... We'll save this. We haven't started yet. I know. <laughs> Great skill can be both a blessing and a curse, but how could it be either if no one believes that you possess it, except for yourself? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and capable singer, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's feature is Dr. Doolittle, the 1967 fantasy musical based on the books by Hugh Lofting, and starring Rex Harrison, Anthony Newley, and Samantha Egger. You join my colleague Chris Arnsby and I in the auditorium I had him build in his front room. Chris. Hello. Now, this month is Blockbuster Month for Cinema Limbo, and as well as examining some of the more recent movies of that particular style of filmmaking, I thought that it's worth looking back a bit further and looking at blockbusters of yesteryear, maybe even from before that term was even coined. Mm. Now, in the 1960s, we didn't have these superhero spectaculars we didn't have alien invasion pictures or cinematic universes or cinematic universes even you had James Bond Mm -hmm. and that was it and the other big box office bonanza was the musical spectacular yes (laughs) (laughs) it certainly was (laughs) I just find it... I, I don't think I could ever imagine applying the word blockbuster to Doctor Doolittle, but I guess it was quite a big deal at the time, wasn't it? Because at the risk of taking the window of yourselves, this is the film that nearly closed down 20th Century Fox, I think, isn't it? I think it's... It's the coup de grace hmm. after a series of <laughs> increasingly insane business decisions. 20th Century Fox had almost gone bankrupt at the beginning of the 60s. Oh, OK, so this was the second run at it for them. <laughs> They're having another go at right. destroying their own company. Um, Cleopatra. Ah, yeah, OK. Starring one Rex Harrison. Oh, yes, he was in it, wasn't he? Yeah, he plays Julius Caesar. And that was a, a giant production, um, which at one point shut down and moved countries and started mm. again from scratch. And it's four hours long and I started watching it recently and boy is it rubbish <laughs> and whether this is true or not but this, the, the story I've heard is it's responsible for the um, flocks of parakeets that now live in South London because when they shifted location from Shepperton the story goes that they just released them into the wild expecting them to be killed off by the harsh British winters but they thrived and now there were flocks of green parakeets everywhere in South London how marvellous yeah yeah 
they've adapted to the British spirit of uh, we're not going to put up with this kind of nonsense, we're going to persevere through it. Pretty much, yes, yeah. The British parakeet at its finest. But um, things looked up for Fox when, of course, they released the biggest movie of all time, The Sound of Music. Yeah, that's true. Which was a gigantic global hit. It won a raft of Oscars, loved by everyone, and it's even watching it now, I, I, I saw it about ten years ago, actually, <laughs> it's actually pretty good. Yeah, it's yeah. dated surprisingly well because I think how are these gonna, how are these sorts of things going to look in a modern setting? I think well, quality will out. Mm, if yeah, it's absolutely. good, then it lasts. Like Mary Poppins, yes, that is such a brilliant production. Everything about it is perfect, and it has such richness and such depth to it that comes out with when you watch it when you're older. Yeah, like the character of Mister Banks, you you see why he is the way he is that he's. He's just trying to do the best for his family. He's yes, yeah. not necessarily demonstrably kind and everything, but he's still trying to give give them what he thinks they need for life, which you don't realise when you're a child. No, no, that's right. And I think this there was a raft of musicals around this time, wasn't there? Because you had obviously Mary Poppins. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was around the same time, yes, wasn't it? Yes, came out, I think that was also 67. Was Willy Wonka a couple of years later? That was 71. 71, so so there's obviously something in the air and people have decided, yes, you know, fantasy musicals. Yeah, Bed yeah. Knobs and Broomsticks. Of course, well, yes, yeah. Movie, was intended originally as a sequel to Mary Poppins. Mm. Um, and it's very, very clearly inspired. But um, with the success of Sound of Music... Fox decided that this will be their new strategy. They'll release one big, giant, smash musical every year, and then they'll be back in, back in, the, back in the black, everything will be hunky-dory. And the three movies oh, that they released under this plan in 1967, Doctor Doolittle. Okay. Bomb. Yes. In 1968, Star... I don't think I've even heard of that. <laughs> that was so successful. But... Starring Julie Andrews. Oh, yes, yeah, that does ring a bell now, yeah. Uh, Bomb. Yeah. In 1969, Hello, Dolly. Yes, which is... Which just broke even. Oh, OK. But was also the most expensive of all of them. Mm. And at that point, they almost went into bankruptcy again for the second time in a decade. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've certainly... I mean, and, and Doctor Doolittle as well, there was... Merchandise. It was massively yeah, merchandised, yeah. and none of it sold. No, because no one went to see the movie and no one cared. And the story that I've subsequently heard from that was that obviously when George Lucas approached 20th Century Fox about Star Wars, and he said, "Oh, I'd like the merchandising rights," they went, "Yeah, yeah sure, sure, you can have them. Yeah. Who, who cares about the merchandising rights?" Well, the funny thing was is that it's not, it, we might get onto a bit later, but mm. the producer Doctor Doolittle had another pet project that he wants to do another sort of semi-fantasy piece of literature that he wanted to adapt and having done Doctor Doolittle which the studio thought was going to be a big hit said can, can, can I do this and yeah but yeah, keep it to a five million dollar budget and, and do it and we'll release it and that movie wound up being <laughs> pretty much the film that said 20th Century Fox and the sequel I think was the only movie Fox had in production in 1970 oh, what's that? Planet of the Apes. Oh, right. <laughs> which was one of the first very successful 
modern merchandise movies. Mm. That that absolutely got it right because that was much fresher and much more current, mm. and it had a very very broad appeal. Doctor Doolittle is a film for the middle aged and older. It children didn't want to see it, and I can't, I can't imagine a child wanting to watch it now. No, um, no, I, I find it hard to imagine anyone. I, I, there was a. There were a couple of points when I realised that I'd misremembered bits of Doctor Doolittle as being in the Disney version of the Swiss Family Robinson. So I was kind of waiting for a bit where I'd see Rex Harrison riding around the island on an, uh, on an ostrich, and that never happened, obviously. You can, I can imagine that happening. Yeah. Because there is, a, there, is a, there is a bit with ostriches. Yes, yeah, and that was the one I said, oh, this is when that bit... And yeah, no, I was getting confused with a completely different film. Um... The original plan was that the songs would be by Lerner and Lowe, who'd written My Fair Lady. Mm, because that was why Rex Harrison was originally hired, because he'd done My Fair Lady, a huge hit for the older set, mm. not a children's film. Um, oh yeah, he'll be, he's a big star, he'll be great in this. Uh, Alan J. Lerner apparently spent a year wasting time and <laughs> actually got <laughs> sacked without actually writing anything. So instead, Leslie Bracuse... The, who was usually the songwriting partner of Anthony Newley, mm. who was a big star on stage, he was brought in to write the songs and write the script based on Hugh Lofting's books. And Bracuse, this was the first script he'd ever been commissioned for, so Bracuse really made an effort. He apparently, in, in, in several months, he already had demos for a number of songs, he had a detailed script outline. Mm. I just thought, wow, clearly we've made a great choice. Yeah, he's really, yeah. and he, he's very much making an effort um, Rex Harrison however uh, I, I think I should hire my own songwriting team and he tried to get Flanders and Swan oh okay and they wrote several songs apparently which obviously weren't used right but it was a sign of things to come that Rex Harrison would do everything possible to disrupt production make other people hate him behave in a completely unprofessional and despicable fashion and generally just drive a stake through his own career <laughs> yes yeah. this is the movie that killed Rex Harrison's film career I because can't... no one wanted to work with him I can't say I'm surprised um, yeah it's there, there, there were several sequences where it's a musical and obviously what you want is a singer musical well but my, I mean My Fair Lady works very well. well. I've never seen My Fair Lady. It's, you know... It's I, a movie in which neither of the two lead actors sing, despite it being well, a musical. Well, this, this is true. In fact, actually, the singer who dubbed um, Julie Andrews died relatively recently. Audrey Hepburn. Oh, good grief. It was Marnie Nixon. Sorry. Yes. Marnie Nixon dubbed... Uh, she was sort of a yes, regular was, well, singing voice for stars who couldn't sing. Cause she, mm. didn't, he, she dubbed Natalie Wood in uh, West Side Story and Deborah Carr in The King and I. And she could sing in the voices of those mm. people, and she was incredibly talented. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I'm just just slightly embarrassed to have got Audrey Hepburn and. Uh... Well, Julie Hendry's on stage. Ah, that'll be. She it, was then. the original star, but she went off to do Mary Poppins. So when they came to do the movie, she wasn't available. So well, who's the biggest star we can get? Audrey Hepburn. Mm. Perfect casting as Eliza Doolittle. Mm. Can she sing? No. Who cares? We've got this. <laughs> We've got a fantastic person who can dub her. Yeah. Because that's clearly not cheating. But yes, the. <laughs> Doctor Doolittle. Uh, Rex Harrison is such... I mean, we'll go into the story, but yeah. Rex Harrison is possibly the most 
uncharismatic, uninteresting leading man you can think of for a movie like this. I'm, I'm, I'm try- I was trying to think of a, a, a word other than uncharismatic, but yeah, I mean, he he should be the person that holds this film together. And it's a musical. You want it to burst into life, and you want songs that you can tap your feet along to. And it's the just, songs aren't that good. They're terrible. There is one good. Well, we might disagree on this, but I think there's one good song. But we'll get to that later. I'd love to know what that is because there's one bit where it really does come to life, and I think. This is the sort of thing I recognise. This is what the whole movie should be like. Mm. And it's just this one bit. Yeah. Now, I watched this on a DVD. I ordered online a very cheap, crappy DVD. Uh, did you take the same route? I, uh, it's, on, it's, it's available to watch on Amazon. So I've basically just spent the last couple of days me- completely messing up my Amazon search history by watching a series of random movies. So I can't wait to see what they recommend for me in the future. No, I... I, I I just watched it. I streamed it, and uh, because I don't want any record that I've watched this. <laughs> um, well, the thing is, even though it's a, a, a cheapo DVD, it does actually come with the overture and the intermission oh. card and the and the exit music. So we do start with an overture. Okay. And it's so dull. I mean, obviously, it's visually, it's just the graphic yeah. of the of the title, but. I think all these songs are just really bland and nothingy. Yeah, yeah it's they, they just completely merge into one, don't they? I know. Yeah. Um, but then the movie starts proper, and there's also a nice uh, sort of animated opening titles mm, with various yeah. animals, you know, and it's all nicely stylized. And it's all quite fun. And the movie itself opens in the little village of Puddleby on the Marsh, mm. which is by the sea. Yes. Um, in 1845. And Matthew Mugg, the cat's meat salesman. Yes. I, know, I think we should stress at this point that he sells meat for cats, not yes. cat's meat. No, he actually he sells meat for cats and dogs. Yes. You yeah. never see him selling any meat to dogs. It does say on his little cart. Yeah. By the key, uh, selling, uh, uh, gathering, gathering his, his yeah. little customers and uh, meeting up with Tommy Stubbins, mm. the, re- the regulation issue child. Yes. I mean, I've, I haven't, I've read several of the Doctor Doolittle books, not for years, but, and it was kind of odd going back to this because I suddenly, it's that slightly weird thing where you suddenly start watching something and it unpacks loads of memories that you haven't thought about for thirty. Or 30. <laughs> I don't know if the word that of, sounds terrible. It's like a kind of well, in the context of something nice. It's great. I think that's what that this thing about Proustian Rush is. You know, the idea that you suddenly come across something and you evoke all these memories and sensations that you've forgotten. I don't know what the term is for when it's something hideous that's the cause of it. It's a reverse Proustian rush, I guess. But yeah, It's it post-traumatic stress disorder. Could well be. That might be it. But um, yeah, it's... I mean, in this case, yeah. I, and, and I do remember that it's very faithful to the books, I think. Well, it had approval from the Lofting family. Okay. Um, they did turn down the apparently extraordinary amount of racism. Yeah. Well, the books would have been written in the 20s and 30s, wouldn't they? So. Yeah. He actually... The way they were written, actually, was, I thought, rather sweet. Hmm. Lofting served in the trenches in World War One, and he originally wrote the stories in letters to send back to his family hmm. as a kind of escape for himself and for them from yeah. the, the unimaginable stuff that he was witnessing and I thought that's that's more interesting yes yeah 
It's like this, it's like the um, ironically the, the film about the making of uh, Mary Poppins yes, yeah, yeah. about the, where the character of Mary Poppins actually came from of this awful childhood mm. of um, Pamela Travers. And I thought that's that's a sort of a very disarming. It sort of immediately gets me on lofting yes. side of thing. And yeah, and then and then the fuzzy wuzzies came along. <laughs> I don't think it's quite that bad, uh, but then again, oh, I think it probably is. I was, I was, I would have been eight or ten when I read them in the late seventies. So I probably read them and then watched, went to watch Mind Your Language or something because I didn't know any better. I can time. imagine that anything that would have been too severe would have been redacted, mm. a bit like, um, uh, and then there were none. Yeah, yes. Christie book having its title changed repeatedly. Or some of the one, one particularly notorious chapter heading in um, Live and Let Die. Yeah. Weirdly enough, I've just read Live and Let Die. And they still keep the original chapter headings, do they? Well, or have they redacted one of them? Well, the copyright, because, because I'm a spod, mm. my James Bond novels are all early 90s reprints Fair because they're, it's a particular cover design that I like. And I finally managed to get hold of Live and Let Die and I read it. And yeah, it's still there. And I thought, I wonder if they're in the current edition. Popped into Waterstones, and they are. Really? I'm amazed. Chapter 7, I think, yeah, is yeah. still called N-Word Heaven. Yeah. Because it's set in Harlem. Wow. I mean, the logic is, I imagine, that no one is going to read that who isn't aware of the context. I suppose so. I suppose it is that thing that, in the case of the Agatha Christie book, if you just happen to pop into a bookshop and yeah, see it, it on, on the cover. Yeah, exactly. Whereas unless you've actually picked up Live and Let Die, but I'm fascinated to see that that title has still survived down the years. Yeah. Because it's like a, it's a chapter title. Yeah. The fact that Bond himself is pretty racist well, anyway yes, yeah. doesn't <laughs> help. <laughs> this is true. As far as in and then there were none, it's not intended to be racist it's just using a term that has it's it's inescapable with that connotation mm. that it was 10 little n-words and then 10 little indians yes, yeah, yes. well now we can't call it that either yeah <laughs> and in the the tv version last year the very very good tv version okay. of and then there were none they changed the round to being 10 little soldiers okay yeah immediately solves the problem yes <laughs> particularly since it's set on soldier island so originally, yeah. in the first bit, it was called N-Word Island? Who knows? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I've not, not read the book, actually. Um, the, it, listener, if you didn't see the uh, TV version of it, then there were none. With uh, Sam Neill and um, Charles Dance and Noah Taylor. It was, uh, Miranda Richardson's excellent cast. It was absolutely terrific. Very, very good. And so was The Secret Agent with uh, Toby Jones but yes Matthew Mugg talking to his little pal Tommy Stubbins yeah Matthew Mugg is played by Anthony Newley big star of the stage very successful and very talented songwriter yeah yeah as I, as I mentioned to you earlier his his catalogue is amazing he wrote uh, with with Leslie Brooks he wrote the theme for Goldfinger he wrote Feeling Good the Nina Simone song he had a huge hit with the stage musical Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. And he also wrote the songs for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And in the early 60s, he even had his own insane, bizarre anti-sitcom, The Strange World of Gurney Slade. Yes, which came out on DVD a couple a of years, years ago. ago. Yeah, and is one of the weirdest ideas for a TV show. Mm. Uh, it's a, the, the lead character in a sitcom 
starts by escaping from his own show and then goes on a series of bizarre stream of consciousness television uh, convention destroying adventures from the writers of the Morecambe and Wise show <laughs> and it's so odd mm. but in 1960 it must have been yeah, yeah. I mean, even looking at it now I think this is incredible this is you know, the imagination this was made more than 50 years ago no wonder David Bowie loved it there's a yes, quote from yeah. him on the DVD about how much he loved it but uh, Anthony Newley firstly Jewish so immediately Rex Harrison hated him oh Rex Harrison's Re- Rex one is, of those yeah <laughs> Rex Harrison's terrible the one thing that turns out, as I said in my researches, uh, I said in a text message to you the other day, the one thing that my researches have proved is that Rex Harrison was a c- <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yeah, he hated Newley because he was Jewish, and he hated the black actors because they were black. Oh, my God. It must have been a delight. As well as him being Jewish in real life, in the film, he's Irish. So he does not pass up any opportunity to be super Irish. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, there's endless comments about he's going to have a drink or he's having a drink or oh no he's run out of drink <laughs> and uh, and yeah yeah he's Irish or somebody else needs to be more they'd be more lucky if they were Irish or at one point he claims a duck is Irish. It just uh, it never ends. No, and it's the worst Irish accent. Is it this possibly this side of is it Sean Connery in The Longest Day? <laughs> the Untouchables, cop? where he plays an, uh, an Irish American cop, and yeah, it's just yeah. him speaking and he with an accent. Yeah, or Darby Gill and the Little People, I think, as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're in that kind of territory. For... I, I recently discovered that I am an Irish citizen. Okay. Because my, my grandmother was Irish, mm. so I'm Irish by, by, by definition. That's, that's how it works. So. I now can take offence at how absurd that is. And I'm going to write to someone on behalf of my people. Anthony Newley's cemetery? I'm going to write to Anthony Newley's grave. (laughs) Yeah, it's a terrible... I mean, I I don't remember enough of the books to remember if Matthew Mugg Mugg was Irish in the books, but... Well, I'd assume that he was. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense at all. Yeah. Well, it might just be one of those decisions where, oh, I, I'm, you know, let's let's give this character a bit of character. But yeah, no, you're quite right actually. With we get reference the frequent Irish references and things, it, it must have been in the books as well. I think because it had, because the uh, the Lofting family were relatively involved, and they they weren't exactly hands on, but they had to approve mm. things as it happened. I thought if there was, if that was a significant change, they might have said. No. Yeah. Why have you made this character yes. Irish for no reason? But I suppose the it's it's the classic example. He never comes across as being very comfortable with the accent, and I think that extends into the it's just so half-hearted. Um, but it's not a very good Irish accent anyway. I think it's passable because it's very theatrical. Yeah, I suppose that's true. It's film Irish, isn't it's, it? It's film musical Irish. Mm. It does. Well, I mean, it really doesn't help. Anthony Newley has such a weird singing voice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> My friend, the doctor tells oh. me. I mean, David Bowie again. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, it's a very late '60s style of singing. Um, but... Except he was always like that. Well, yeah. <laughs> and little Tommy Stubbins, who might as well be like 
Matthew Mugg's imaginary friend because he yeah. has absolutely no impact on anything in the movie. He does nothing, ever. I don't think any of them... I don't think Matthew Mugg particularly has much to do. Well, there's a, I think there's supposed to be some kind of love triangle. Well, it's but it kind of gets off. forgotten yeah. at some point, and then it ends without any conclusion. Yes. Because the film had to be quite heavily recut in post-production because the intestinal details did They kept I, cutting out extra songs that would sort of explain what was going on. I think part of the problem as well is that the bulk of the story is based on, is it the voyages of Doctor Doom at all? Uh, well, the, the second half is, certainly. Yeah, but, and that's... I, I very quickly went back and... and it's available for, uh, under sort of Project Gutenberg and things like that. Um, I quickly breezed through Matthew Mark's not in it. Um, oh. So what they've done is, it's not just that they've turned one book into a film. They've been determined to Doctor Doolittle it up to the max, and they've taken bits from one book, and, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why the story is such a, a mess, is that there's just no focus to the damn thing. <laughs> no, I know. But, um... I don't think we've got past the only five minutes yet. the first five minutes of the movie. Only 140 minutes to go. <laughs> so this duck that has flown into a ship's mast yes. uh, is taken by... Matthew and Tommy to Doctor Doolittle, mm. the animal doctor who can talk to animals, and we get a very blarney song along the, along the way. And in the song, he mentions having apple pie and cheese. Yeah. Now, this is something I've heard of before, and it sounds to me like something that a deeply insane person <laughs> would have. Apple pie with a nice slab of cheese on top. Yeah. Is this, does this is it, you, in your experience? Is this something that actually happens? I've I've certainly never had it. I mean, it's it's one of these things as well that I've come. I've, I've certainly heard references to it before. I mean, I could. I don't remember that particular line in the song because. Well, the, it's because I watched Men in Black three earlier in the week. And there's a scene where young Tommy Lee Jones has a slice of apple pie with a big lump of cheddar cheese on it. Okay. And I thought, what? Could it be more of an American thing then? Or... Certainly but it's not some... to do little. <sighs> but, you yeah, know, you get stuff like... Um, uh, what's the... Uh... Great, I've forgotten the name of the film now. Um we might have to scratch this bit <laughs> like, um, anything you can remember about it yeah it's the one um, it's Alan Moore it's the House of Parliament blows up V for Vendetta V for Vendetta I got stuck on Z for Zachariah and I knew it def- I knew it had a letter in it I just couldn't remember what it was but there's a bit in that where one of the scenes that Alan Moore objected to in the script was where V cooks the traditional English breakfast of eggs in a blanket or something yeah. I think, and, and Alan Moore just went well this you know I think he decided, I, I think he may have decided to seize on that as an example of everything that was wrong with the film because that's a long way from being a traditional English breakfast dish, but. I remember reading about that at the time and keeping an eye out for it when I saw the movie and I think it's Stephen Fry's character who makes it oh, okay. and he says something along the lines of oh this is something that my mum used to make mm. so it's more oh this is like a like a family tradition rather mm. than any kind of well-known yeah, dish. Yeah, So sense. I thought maybe they'd taken criticisms on board there because the problem there is it's... Viva Vendetta was 
shot in Germany by a Australian director with American writers, whereas Doctor Doolittle <laughs> is shot a large chunk of it in the UK mm. with British actors, a British screenwriter based on British books. So why are they having this in this insane comment about apple pie and cheese? Who knows? Maybe it just rhymes. And the funny thing is, you mentioned Zephyr Zachariah. Did you know there's been a film of Zephyr Zachariah? Uh, I saw a trailer for it on YouTube, and... It came out in America a year ago, and it still doesn't have a release date for the UK. I can't say I'm surprised. Did it, I'm guessing it stiffed as well, did it? Well, it was a small release. Yeah. It was one of the... It came, in through, it came out through a film festival, and someone bought up the release rights. The, the big problem with Zephyr Zachariah when I saw the trailer, was that the book has two characters in it. The film has three. Has three. And immediately, you dis- you destroy the... Now, there's nothing wrong with making changes to a book when you adapt it for the screen, but that's such a fundamental shift in the nature of the story that you may as well have just written your own story at that point. Yeah. I'm intrigued as to how it's going to turn out. It was such a staple yeah. of secondary school libraries mm. up and down the country. Well, the BBC did a version of it for Play for Today as well, which I think is available to watch on YouTube. I wouldn't say available to watch on YouTube. I'd say someone's posted it on YouTube. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. It's, probably, it's technically not supposed to be there. No, no, this is true. <laughs> but yeah, from what I gather, that's a fairly um, uh, it's a faith, very, faithful it's, adaptation. It's a very, of the book. very faithful adaptation. And the interesting thing is, it's that shift between a book that's aimed at teenagers. And you do a very, very straightforward transfer of it for television, it immediately becomes something for, well, appropriate for the play for today slot in the late 70s or early 80s. So, yeah, it's just funny how transferring it from one medium to another increases the intended age range. Mm. Because it's a very dark book. Mm. I mean, it's about, it starts with, there's been a nuclear war, yes. and there's only one survivor. Yeah. <laughs> Which is always, a, it's like every book in the school library was like that oh yeah there's mm. something terrible's happened yes where was the 80s <laughs> it's like the novelization of threads <laughs> yes so they arrive at Dr. Dillard's okay. house <laughs> 10 minutes into okay no, okay. no more sidetracks let's, let's 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 knuckle down and get yeah, through yeah. this bring the pain doors answered by Chi Chi the monkey and Polynesia the parrot mm. and Polynesia is intelligent and can speak. Yeah, this goes unremarked upon. It does, doesn't it? Actually, people I mean, even later on in the courtroom scene. Yeah, I think the parent speaks in the court. I think so. And nobody seems. Everybody's astounded that Doctor Doolittle can talk to the dog. Nobody remarks on the fact that there's an intelligent power that can speak English. Yes. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. It's fine. It's just the film undermining its own reality. Yeah. Doolittle's house is full of every kind of animal. Uh, and he's currently talking to some fish to learn their language. He's trying to learn goldfish. Mm. Because his ambition is to track down the giant pink sea snail. Yes. And I think this is symptomatic. It's, always, it's Everything's big and spectacular. It's uh, the giant pink sea snail going to travel all over the world. I think you're thinking about the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> this movie needs to have Dick Van Dyke in the lead role. Because he's someone whom you immediately like. Yes. And it, it would be a bit more of a straighter role for him, a bit more sort of uh, controlled. Because do, do little, he's not supposed to be very good with people. He's sort of a little bit awkward. He's much more comfortable with animals. So it would be a bit more of a stretch for Van Dyke. But he has that charisma. Mm. He has that 
comfortable presence that Rex Harrison doesn't have. He looks like he wants to be somewhere else all the time. And I don't know if it's just this movie where he clearly hated everyone. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, the mind boggles, doesn't it? Yeah. He, he, presumably he was just thinking of the paycheck or something. But, yeah. They actually paid Christopher Plummer $300,000 as a retainer to keep him on standby in case they decided they'd had enough of Harrison and wanted to get rid of him. Wow. So they would immediately have another lead they could bring in mm. to reshoot everything as quickly as they could. That, Christopher Plummer might have been an interesting choice. Dick Van Dyke would have uh, would have been a good choice as well. Because Christopher Plummer is a straight actor yeah. who is also a singer. And uh, Edward Woodward. Can he sing? He had his own variety show. <laughs> wow, OK. He was a very talented singer. OK, good for him. Again, yeah, yeah. a great serious actor. At the same time, he's doing Callum the most mm. dark and mean-spirited spy show on television. But also, Dr. Doolittle, the musical. I think that would have been interesting. I think, yeah, yeah, he would have been a good choice. If you, if you want to go for someone who's a bit more serious, mm. so I think, who else had a variety show at the time? Tom Jones? Um, yeah, possibly Tom Jones. <laughs> Tom Jones is Dr. Doolittle, though. A swinging Dr. Doolittle. Possibly a bit like too sexy. Engelbert Humperdinck, yeah. Um, I don't know, it's... I could, the the terrible thing is you can kind of you can see all the breadcrumbs that lead to this disaster because you've got a series of much left children's books just like Mary Poppins. It's by, you know you've got um, Rex Harrison in a musical just like he was in My Fair Lady. You can kind of see how they would have sat there going, "This is it. This you, is the one that's going." You've to got work. Anthony Newley, the big musical yeah, star, yeah. in a major supporting role. Leslie Bracuse, the great songwriter, Richard Fleischer, very experienced director. Uh All the individual bits make sense. Except, let's make a movie with lots and lots of animals. Yes. That's (laughs) a very, very bad idea. Mm. When they they did it with Eddie Murphy, all CGI. Oh, uh, yeah. As much CGI as possible. There's a couple... In fact, there's a couple of... Animal puppets in there. There's definitely it's the, that fox is, is, is a very very yeah. poor puppet. I think the seal a couple of times. There's there's a there's a one particular bit. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. A little bit later on, Rex Harrison has to pick up a seal from a hay cart, and there's it's slightly awkward, which makes me suspect that what he's doing is actually pulling the puppet off the puppeteer's arm in ah. such a way that it doesn't doesn't look too too strange. Is that the seal that he then sings a love song to? Snogs and then throws over a cliff. That's the one, yes. And doesn't take okay. the, and doesn't take the women's clothes. Doesn't take. <laughs> he's also dressed the seal up as a woman and is then arrested for murder. Yes. It's that kind of film. But, you know, there, there was a stage version of this. Yeah, I can't imagine what that must have been like. Well, to begin with, Doctor Doolittle was... They actually... I say it was a good casting choice, but it's a logical casting choice. Philip Schofield. Oh, oh, oh a more recent one. Yeah, so oh, I, yeah, yeah. This, I was trying to imagine one in the 60s with sort of bears on roller skates or something. All the animals for the stage version effects. Yeah, yeah, animatronics Would have been... And the- puppets. Mm. Um, I think absolutely everything not one live animal because you have to have that totally under control yes oh god yeah there's a few bits in the the animals on film are are largely well behaved I think there's a couple of occasions when something towards the edge of frame is fluttering around a bit but generally speaking they used good takes for the animals well one major problem was 
the production itself was large, was supposed to be based in California. So they trained all the animals in California because that's where a lot of the sets were going to be. But the location shooting was in the UK. Mm. And there's a little thing called quarantine laws. Yeah, yeah. So they had to come to the UK, find lots more animals, and train them all over again from scratch. And you can just see the budget starting to go up, can't you? The budget tripled mm. over the course of shooting. I'm not surprised. Oh, the other, so the, the other big fake animal is obviously the giant pink sea snow. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah of course, yeah. Um, I checked and adjusted for inflation. That prop cost half a million dollars in, in present-day money. Okay, yeah, that's... I... And it looks... Ridiculous. It looks, it, yes. I mean, it, it looks does. like it's got a smiley face on the front. It does look very pleased with itself, yeah. I mean, it's supposed to be a nice, big, friendly yeah. creature, but it's supposed to be an animal and not a cartoon. Mm. So, a certain amount of realism in your giant pink sea snow. And the other story that I loved is that all, the, all those island sequences were filmed in St. Lucia. Um, but there had recently been an outbreak of food poisoning there caused by people eating freshwater snails. Oh, okay. So they brought... And now they bring this giant snail there, almost as I say, ha-ha, <laughs> fuck you. Yes, yeah. And to no one's surprise, the locals started throwing stones at it, <laughs> as if it was some kind of sacrificial effigy. I kind of quite like... Yeah, <laughs> I can see the logic. I mean, just be glad if it was Edward Woodward, they would probably <laughs> stop it. <laughs> inside a boat. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Ironically, he's the only one who doesn't go inside at the end. Yes, yeah. Now, Doolittle asks Matthew and Tommy to stay for dinner, and there is a cut I liked from them cooking sausages and bacon over the fire to a pig. Yeah. And Dr. Doolittle explains that he's a vegetarian, which is actually something they invented for the film, because in the book, yeah, he eats meat. I think, yeah, yeah. Don't, I, I, I was watching that whole scene, and he gets a whole song about it, doesn't it? Yeah, and he sings a song about how he's a reluctant vegetarian. Yeah. And there is a bit where he's holding the pig, and he looks like he's about to take a huge bite out of it. <laughs> but it's his, his conscience and his knowledge that these are intelligent mm. people, effectively, that keeps him in check. And then we have a flashback about how he set up his animal practice. As I say, he's his, um, what's the joke again? He decided to go to animal husbandry until one day they caught him at it. Something like that. Okay. I... <laughs> but he was, a, he was a doctor. He was, a, he was an ordinary human doctor. But his patients were all horrible people. But the animals he, he much preferred. And his sister, who was his housekeeper, set him a ultimatum that either he gets rid of all these animals or she'll walk out on him. So she walked out on him, and he's never seen her again. Hmm. But I mean, you've some. But that flashback feels like it goes on for it feels twenty very minutes long, or thirty yeah. minutes, um, and it's full of some terrible sort of sub chuckle brothers slapstick that that should be funny on paper because there's a whole bit where the colonel comes in and he's got a bad foot, and people keep standing on his foot, and people keep shriek, and then oh, there's the the posh duchess whose name escapes me and she's got a mouse on her hat and she starts shrieking and mm. it's all again it should be funny but it's just so leaden um, on screen and it just goes on and on and then sorry uh, and, then, and then still part of the flashback I think is the parrot offering to teach him yes to speak Polynesia the parrot who can speak 
and whom no one finds this strange in any way, is also 200 years old mm. and knows almost every animal language and offers to teach Doolittle so that he can talk to his animal patients. And then that goes into the, the big talk to the animals yes, number. Yeah. Which wasn't as good as I remembered. <laughs> no. It did make me think of the, the song from, of, ironically linking together, Stop the Planet of the Apes, I Want to Get Off. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Um, where I expect Doolittle to say that he's going to learn every language, every letter of the animal alphabet from chimpan A to chimpan Z. That would have been far too good a joke for, for this script, unfortunately. And, and there is a bit where Bricus rhymes three lions with sea lions. Yeah, that's just cheating. You can't can't rhyme words like that. The, the, Harry Enf- one of Harry Enfield's less successful characters was Doctor Doolittle. I think this must have been in the early nineties, and it would get you know you'd get this title card that went you know Doctor Doolittle. He talks to the animals, and then Harry Enfield would walk up to a parrot dressed as Rex. Har- the, Harry Enfield dressed as Rex Harrison would walk up to a parrot and would say something like, <laughs> "Now say bollocks." <laughs> it was wasn't one. That's of, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> The only other one of those sketches I remember was that he walks up to a beagle and goes, would you like a cigarette? Yeah, and on both... (laughs) (laughs) On both occasions, the joke... That's almost brilliant. Because he talks to the animals... Yeah, just says horrible things to them. Maybe that was the joke and I didn't get it. He goes up to a, a, a worm and say, did you see the match last night? They can't talk back. He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't understand what they say. But I suppose, they just, and that goes up to a badger and says, so what do you think about uh, joining the European monetary system? <laughs> I don't know, yeah. I hadn't considered that, that side of it, that it was just that he goes around saying, oh, yeah. But anyway, the, the joke, my memory of it is that it was like a one-show character and Harry Enfield rapidly... I can imagine them do like like three times during the course of a I show. I think they probably do. kind of little one-off games. Yeah, didn't catch on. But yeah, the plot comes to a complete stop as Rex Harrison mm. recites the lyrics without yeah. singing. He just talks in rhythm yeah. because he's not a very good singer. Anthony Newley, for all his failings, knows how to hit the notes. Yeah. And I say his failings, it's just his weird singing voice, but he can hit the notes. There was supposed to be a character in it from the books called Prince Bumpo. Oh, yes, yeah. Who was an African prince. And the original thinking was he'd be played by Sammy Davis Jr., Huge stuff. Which would have been brilliant. Yeah. Amazing showman, incredibly charismatic, fantastic. Also Jewish, but... Also (laughs) Jewish and black. Oh. Um, Harrison vetoed Davis because he supposedly didn't want another entertainer. A likely story. Well, I would say it's more likely that he didn't want him there because Davis was a better singer than he was. Instead, he suggested Sidney Poitier. Terrific actor, mm. not known as a singer. Maybe he can sing. Yeah. We'll never know. But they ended up cutting the character from the movie entirely. Mm. And there is a completely different black prince type character later in the movie instead. In fact, speaking of Sidney Poitier, I looked into Best Picture nominees because the, the thing is, oh, yes, Dr. Yes. Doolittle was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. <laughs> And it is now apparently generally accepted that they bribed their way to this. I'm not remotely surprised, but what what else was for, up for consideration that year? Two movies with Sidney Poitier in them. The winner was In the Heat of the Night. Okay. A serious, heart-hitting movie about 
race and police corruption. Um, other nominees were Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, mm. a much lighter, more approachable, less confrontational movie about yeah. race. Another movie with Catherine, Catherine Ross is in that is Sidney Poitier's fiance, and she's also in The Graduate. Oh, was that the same year? Which is also same year. That was also nominated. Again, very modern movie about the mm. the emptiness of the baby boomer generation. And the other one was the movie that gave birth to the new Hollywood, Bonnie and Clyde. All very modern, very yeah. fresh, current movies, and Doctor Doolittle. I mean, you've you got to admire the, the chutzpah, basically, for even getting the get, getting the efforts up to, to get it nominated. Well, because the movie was doing so badly yeah. that, it, I mean, it's like today that the Oscars are just regarded as a prize that, that you must get at any cost. So the publicity campaigns for the Oscars are now completely absurd. Mm. And you get movies winning that really don't deserve it. I mean, I think... We spoke before about the Revenant, and I thought the oh, Revenant yes, was yeah, basically yeah. crap. Yeah. Um, but you know, people say, "Oh, it's such an amazing movie," because there was this endless publicity mm. campaign pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, and we ended up with the Best Picture winner being Spotlight, not because it was the best movie of the year, but because that is the choice that's going to upset the least number of people. Mm. Because it couldn't have been Mad Max because it's an action movie and that's bad. Oh, it yes, couldn't yeah. be the Revenant because the Revenant wasn't very good. It couldn't be. Whatever any of the others were, yeah, couldn't couldn't tell you. But, uh, uh, I, don't, I can't recall offhand. Um, yeah, disgraceful. Yeah. And then what won Best Picture the following year? Oliver. Really? Okay. That's Which a- is unwatchable. Let's do a family musical about child poverty, enslavement, prostitution, murder, anti-Semitism. Wrap it all up in a fun bunch of songs yeah. and pretend that it's suitable for everyone. Yeah, but it but it won, so it obviously did something right that Doctor Doolittle didn't. Yeah, it wasn't a box office disaster. Well, yes, and the songs are better. Well, they, yeah, yeah, this is the songs are very very catchy in Oliver. Mm. I'm sure you can sing three of them. Right yeah, now. yeah, I'm just running through and consider yourself. Consider yeah, yourself. Um, who will buy food? Wonderful food. Yeah, yeah. Food. Food, food wonderful, wonderful food. I think it's food glorious. Food glorious. Yeah. See, we remember them so well. Yes. Yeah. Um, boy for sale. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Again, uh, creepy. I overuse that word. That's well. Yeah. We did. Um, we had to do Oliver. Well, this is a side and yet another diversion. We had to do Oliver at school as a school musical, and when my friend was cast in the part of Mr. Brownlow and had to sing. Mr. Brown uh, had to say, uh, had to sing uh, "Boy for Sale," and of course, <laughs> we were all of that age where we thought it was hysterical. <laughs> so, what happens next? Uh, yes, why? Does no, we're still on towards the animals. We're still on towards the animals. Now, if Doolittle has learned all these languages, mm. wouldn't he be better off being a linguist rather than a doctor? You would think so, yes, because he's had no veterinary training. No, I don't think he has, has he? I think He's a qualified human doctor. Mm. He's like Graham Garden. <laughs> He's a qualified doctor. Yeah. But Graham Garden is, you know, nice to be around. Yes. General Bellows, mm. the local squire type. The, the local sort of shorthand for villain, yeah. Yeah. Uh, his horse is short-sighted. So... 
Doolittle arranges some glasses for him. And Bellows is outraged that Doolittle is um, treating animals without mm. his consent. And says, oh, if I, if I were late for my fox hunt, I'd report you for cruelty. That I liked. Yeah. And actually, yeah. the bit where they put the glasses on the horse is a good visual gag. Yeah, it's actually like something the goodies would have done a few years later. Yeah, it's a horse wearing a pair of glasses. Yeah, it's great. And the, ho- and the, um, the eye chart oh, yes, yeah, is yeah. a series of pictures of horse-related things. Mm. Like carrots, turnips, gates... <laughs> some hay yeah yeah and that's that's fine that's a nice little a little bit actually the one thing that I think does come out of the film and does feel very that hasn't dated and might even be a fairly forward thinking is it's very pro animal rights mm. which isn't really surprising but it does make this point over and over again I mean that line in particular is clearly saying fox hunting is bad because he's treating a fox mm. that has been hurt and um, isn't there a, like a, a oh there's a skunk yes, there's yeah. a skunk that runs with the local foxes deliberately to put all the dogs yes, off the scent yeah. and I think there's a line as well about the fact that the the, the fox's husband has fox's already hu- been killed yeah and I think this is a point where Doolittle could maybe be a little bit more forceful in his well, if the, I hate it, but and he isn't he? Harrison just stands there. Hmm. But also, if the script was a little bit more focused, that would be the story. Would be Doctor Doolittle starts to take action about the treatment of animals in in England, yes. and then the Squire would be the villain, and it would build up, and there would be some big confrontation at the end. Yeah, and and, and that in itself, you could make a film out of that story. Yeah, the idea that he's he's. He's behaving as a doctor and thinking, well, prevention's better than mm. cure. I'll, I'll heal animals that need um, my assistance, but let's try and stop them having to come to see me in the first yeah. place by making sure all animals are decently treated. That's a good story. Yeah, yeah. But no, let's go off on a ship halfway around the world for half the movie yeah. and forget what the rest of the whole thing's going on. General's niece, Emma Fairfax, also turns up. She is immediately very, very angry with Doolittle because, oh, he's terrible. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's the most... The, the, they've got that term, haven't they, in Hollywood, where they talk about meet-cutes between the, oh, the leading yes. man. And, and it's... This is kind of the most cynical... Uh, no, no, I'm not even sure cynical is the right word. Clumsy? Clumsy, yeah, clumsy. Because it is this thing that they turn up... She she takes an instant... I was going to say she takes an instant dislike to Dr. Doolittle, but it's possible she's just taken an instant dislike to Rex Harrison. Yeah. <laughs> she may not be acting at this point. Um, and it's just so clumsy. It's because it's the, it's the most telegraphed, oh, she doesn't like him, but in, a, you know, in 40 minutes' time she'll be singing songs about how wonderful he is. Because, and then she goes off and she has a whole song about how terrible it is to be a woman or something. Yeah, it? and immediately after that she sings another song. Oh, yeah. It segues into a, a, another song immediately about how she's at a crossroads in her life. Mm. That song adds nothing. Yeah, no, There's no, so many of the songs you could just cut. No, so far, I don't think any of the I mean, Talk to the Animals, yes. Possibly even... Um, My Matthew, Friend the Doctor, yeah, yeah. I quite like. Yeah. As, because it works as an overture as well. Mm. And is that just to bridge the thing of them going from the village to Doolittle's house? Let's have a little song on the way. That's fine. Well, talk to the animals are fine. We don't need the vegetarian song. No. We don't need Emma's two songs. Well, they don't. They don't add anything to the the plot or the character. They... No, it just comes to a complete yeah. stop. 
and that's possibly the worst that, that, that that's always what people say is the worst crime a musical can commit isn't it is that the you have a story that's kind of chugging along and then it grinds to a halt while you have a song and then it kind of tries to lurch back into life and yeah that's exactly what goes wrong here reply to that later hmm. you're absolutely right and speaking of completely removable sections a box turns up from Tibet which has been sent by a red Indian yes and they refer to him as a red Indian yeah. as well you know one of them walks. <laughs> and it's from it's from Tibet and Matthew being Irish is thick yeah says oh is it is it the sea snow by any chance yeah from Tibet yes well of course I mean what else is it well it turns out it's a nightmare monster <laughs> <laughs> it, it's the it's the push me pull you which is terrifying. I actually, it was. I was really surprised by my own reaction. I thought, no, this is some kind of <laughs> unpleasant Lovecraftian uh, ancient horror. It's it's just so. There's something wrong mm. with the idea of it's two animals grafted together, together in the middle. And I think as a even as a kid, I remember, and I, th- I don't know if everybody has this worry, but I remember having this nagging worry about not understanding how it went to the toilet. Um, <laughs> and you texted me about this the other day, and what did I say in response? Yeah, you know, I'm afraid that, oh, it died. <laughs> it died. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, to be fair, you know, it's like the joke in The Simpsons when Marge looks at the cat poster and she realises it was made in 1967, and she goes, oh, determined or not that cat's long dead. I mean, every animal in this film is dead. Now, is that possibly Polynesia? Parents don't live for 200 years. No, this is true. A Polynesia was probably dead. Yeah. Rex Harrison probably killed her. <laughs> he ate her. <laughs> Raw. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... But the Push Me Pull You is the one... It's the, the, almost the one thing that everyone remembers from the film, possibly just because it is this nightmarish It's thing. It's just such a weird yeah. idea. The giant sea snail, you can kind of think, yeah, okay, hmm. But something that's two llamas that have gone through a cut and shunt. Yeah. It's so. It's just so strange. I think, and I, I, I think, although I, I never did track down a good picture on the of it on the internet. You could buy plush push me pull yous as part of the great twentieth century fox merchandise. Oh my god! Yeah. So for that child you hate, you could get them a nightmare monster teddy bear. With best wishes from Rex Harrison. <laughs> yes. P.S. You. Pretty much. And this plays into Doolittle's plan mm. to go searching for the, the snail. So Long Arrow, the Red Indian, who presumably was wearing his headdress and no shirt when he wrote his picture-writing I, letter, because it's that kind of yes, movie, yeah. um, has sent in this push-me-pull-you so that he can sell it <laughs> and make money. It is actually, yeah, it's, that's pretty much the intent, isn't it, that, that, that it will be sold? Yes, I'd forgotten. So even though Doolittle is supposed to be championing animal rights, he's going to sell this animal into mm. slavery. And has no problem with it being put in a crate from Tibet. That's the... Yeah. So he goes to the circus, and this is the bit where the movie actually comes to life. Yeah. In the least necessary part of the film, it suddenly bursts into yeah. energy. And who should be this... A musical performer who brings the musical to life it's Richard Attenborough yeah, he's, he's brilliant he's yeah I mean this is the bit 
the, of the film that works. Yeah, absolutely. He's fantastic. This very boisterous mm. circus owner. But a good, also a good song, well edited, lots of stuff going on on screen that you yeah. can look at. Um, and, he, and he really puts heart and soul. I've never seen anything like it. Mm. Like, it's a great song. It's This is what the movie should be yeah, like. Yeah. It should be this spectacular extravaganza of energy and light and sweeps you up and not mm. just be this dull, static drone. Yeah. But yeah, Attenborough is fantastic. Yeah, he's... he's, he's He's really good. I mean, I haven't seen him act in... I haven't seen Brighton Rock, actually. And he's he's like, very good. He's meant to be really he's good in it. very... Thinking about my words. Menacing and subtle. Mm. It's a very kind of small, contained performance. I think, to my shame, the only films I've seen of his that he acts in would be Doctor Doolittle and Jurassic Park, which maybe is not the breadth of his career. Well, um, yeah, yeah, uh, so going up the, the opposite end of Brighton Rock, he's mm. in Miracle on 34th Street yeah. as Father Christmas. And he's perfectly cast. He looks like Father Christmas and he acts like Father Christmas. And he seems to be like that in real life as well. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, th- th- there's certainly some, some really nice stories about him. Mm. That, and he was the spitting image puppet in the 80s, I think, that just constantly burst into tears. In fact, I think there's a joke in Monty Python as well at one point <laughs> where they're doing a... Baft, a, a sort of spoof BAFTAs or something and so I'm, I'm sure that's Python and somebody keeps crying and it's yeah it's meant to be Richard Attenborough well he was the lovey's lovey yes, yeah. but he also did a huge amount for the industry of mm. um, f- uh, funding schemes to train young people in uh, film and theatre skills and uh, putting money into these acts of anti-poverty drives mm. to give people the skills to work in the industry He's the anti-Rex Harrison. We're really laying into Rex Harrison, but I can't overestimate how awful he is Mm. based on what I've read about him. Yeah, yeah, I I wasn't aware of some of the more unpleasant... I I, I was kind of aware he wasn't well-liked, but, yeah, he just sounds like a thoroughly nasty piece of work. Uh, Well, both he and Attenborough were knighted. Wow. And only one of them earned it well yes <laughs> and I'm sure there was someone else as well on the movie who was nice and now I can't remember who it was what in um... in Doctor Doolittle it might just be in my imagination or well, I'm getting confused with Samantha Egger well, the... who played Emma because I'm getting being knighted confused with being in a film with David Cronenberg yeah yeah possibly I mean I know that the guy that played the uh that plays the squire had quite a long Peter just, Ball yeah. who played the Russian ambassador in Doctor Strangelove that was it yes yeah which would have been around the same time actually. It was a few years earlier yeah yeah of course yeah um, and Jeffrey Holder who plays the um, head of the tribesmen on the on the island William Shakespeare the tenth yes of course was Baron Samady in yes, Live and yeah. I can't tell you how much my interest in the film perked up when he appeared and he's really good <laughs> he's, he's great he, he's Genuinely, he, I, I possibly him and Richard Attenborough were the two highlights of this film. I think. Well, Holder was a dancer, mm. which is why he was cast in *Live and Let Die*. He sort of has that that way of movement that yeah. makes him interesting to watch. And the, the bit where he's introduced to Doolittle and Doolittle saying, "Now we come from Big Island, <laughs> looking for giant snail," and Jeff Holmes looks and says. 
What an extraordinary accent you have. <laughs> it's a really nice gag, and I'm not sure... It's one that Passage of Time, I think, has been kinder to than a lot of the rest of the film, because I suspect... Maybe I'm being unfair with the filmmakers in the 60s, but I suspect the joke there was meant to be, look at these islanders, we think they're going to be horrible savages, and actually they're very well educated. Yeah, they're very, very cultured. That was the joke, which, which is a slightly unpleasant joke, obviously, but... Of course, passage of time now, the moment the islanders turn up, I kind of had this horrible middle-class angst of, oh, am I about to be, watch something that's unacceptable? And then the joke is that, no, actually, I'm not going to watch something that's unacceptable because these people are really clever and nice. Yeah. So it's just interesting the way that one single joke the, you know, has kind of flipped in the intervening years. Well, it does seem to be that um, Harrison made himself very unpopular mm. by just generally being racist. Well, and his entourage as well was incredibly racist. So this was clearly the, the prevailing mood is that you can't say these things anymore. So we're going to have these people. But mm. it's going to turn out that they have lots of books. Yeah, washed yeah. Up the thing that sat a bit oddly with me is they're very cultured, but it's not their own culture. No, that's true. They've, they have raised themselves up by reading and absorbing the culture of the white man. Yeah. And that's... it's very colonial. Mm. Yes, yeah, it is. Uh, that, that's true. It's kind of a compromise between the stuff that Sidney Poitier was doing, <laughs> the good movies, and the flat-out racism of the books, mm. where you have Prince Bumpo. Yes, yeah. Natty, I believe, was his first name. Oh, really? Yes. Not Golly. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that was a different series of books by Eni Blyton. So we have the whole big musical mm. number at the circus. Richard Attenborough doing his... running around, being great... And they strike a deal where Doolittle will partner him in the circus and the push me pulley was a huge sensation. Mm. But while he's there, he notices that the performing seal isn't really performing. And he discovers this by repeatedly throwing a ball at its face. Yeah. No, I think, to, to be fair to Rex Harrison, it's not him that's throwing the... It's, isn't it one of the other trainers that's throwing the ball? Oh, the right. And Rex Harrison is just observing. He's just um, he's watching only, and yeah. laughing to yes, himself. Yeah. <laughs> Suffering. But, yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically it. And then there's a, there's a gag that doesn't quite work where he reads a book about how seals are very sentimental creatures and goes, oh, what a good book, who wrote this? Oh, I did. Um, I completely missed that. <laughs> I must have. Uh, I think this is the point where my brain started to shut down. Quite possibly, yeah. I, the, the way I watched this movie got a bit jumbled yeah. because the, I planned on watching it in two parts mm. because it just because it's a long movie, it is. and I, because I got sort of sidetracked by other things, I wound up only watching the first half hour oh, on wow. the first night. So, on the second night, I had to watch the remaining two hours of the movie in one go, and. It was an effort, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we had a text conversation, yeah, yeah. and I was losing my mind. Yeah. Yes, you did sound uh, like you were get, getting a bit desperate. And of course, then, the ironic thing was that I'd scheduled to watch the film the night after, so I kind of went into it with all this baggage of... Of me going insane. Yeah. And I've got to say, that I had a very similar experience, and there, there was a point, I think 90 minutes into the film... Around the intermission... It may actually that might make sense actually. The inter- did, was there an intermission in your version? No, it, it just cuts. It's... But the point that it, the point that the film there, there, there's a very weird transition where it's the end of the court case and Rex Harrison is sentenced to go off to be taken to the local lunatic asylum. Very sad moment. Fade to black. Immediately fade up to 
slightly chirpy music of um, Matthew and Tommy and Emma sitting on a bridge. And yeah, that's the intermission. That would make sense. That, that it would make much more sense that if there was a gap there. Because I th- I looked and thought, well, it's it's suddenly gone from it's gone from sort of sad to happy so quickly. It's kind that of like gone from bad to verse. <laughs> They probably I do apologise. They probably use that line in the film somewhere. It doesn't rhyme with itself. No, that's true. Um, yeah, the intermission's in a really odd place. It's, mm. it's two and a half hours, but the first half is 90 minutes. Yeah. And it's really, really slow. Yeah. The second half, which is only an hour, is quite jam-packed with plot, mm. has significantly fewer songs per minute... And actually, it improves, I think, yeah. quite a bit when they're actually doing something. Yes. Yeah, but there was that point at the end. I didn't realise, of course, I'd paused the film at the end of the intermission, but I went to get myself a cup of coffee, and it was that thing of looking at it going, oh, it's still an hour. hour. Yeah. <laughs> I think, which was probably what people were saying in 1967 as well. Well, just remember, the original uh, preview version of the movie was at least ten minutes longer. Hmm. Matthew is starting to woo Emma. Oh, God, that's right. And he sings at least two songs yeah. at her. Yeah. And does she sing a song at him, or does she get to sing a song about how she suddenly decided that actually she loves Dr. Doolittle rather than hate? I kind of forget. Yeah. There's, there's a whole... There's, there's, there's an attempt at an emotional transition, isn't there? Because it cuts... At one point, she's sitting in the circus audience looking furious... Um, but she slightly was, less furious than she did she earlier. She repeatedly comes to see the show at, oh, at the that's, circus. Yeah, that's it. And she's, she's, it's like a hate watch. Yes. <laughs> um, and she becomes less and less uh, filled with hate. Mm. And Doolittle is so dull. Yeah. Matthew at least has personality. Yeah. He yeah. Not much in the way of prospects as he sells meat to cats. Yes. But. I know who I know who I'd rather go with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, as one other uh, thing that I found out is that um, the the reluctant vegetarian number was the hardest one to film oh. because he had to have all the animals staying still and keeping quiet. Mm. And they managed to get through the whole of the first take, almost to the end, when a voice said, "Cut." And Rex Harrison looks and says, what? what? What's what's the matter? And Richard Fleischer, the director, says, I didn't say anything. It was the parrot. Wow, that's brilliant. Also, they had to build the set for do a little study on a slant so that you could hose, hose away oh all the animal God. droppings. <laughs> They'd have to take the furniture away every night and wash it. It must have... The set must have reaped. They had to reinforce the set in case someone kicked the wall down. It was... To, uh, this, wow! They say ne- they never work with children no. or animals. This is why they say yeah, never yeah. work with animals because you end up with Doctor Doolittle. Mm. Yeah. This is what when they did the stage version, it's all animatronics. When they did the, the, the Eddie Murphy version, it's all CGI. Yeah. Because it's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. God, and just imagine what it must have been like on that set. Yeah, it must have just been hideous. So while Matthew is singing at Samantha Egger. The seal. The reason the seal is depressed is she misses her husband, because he's up in the Arctic because she was obviously been captured. So Doolittle's plan is to help her to get away by taking her to the Bristol Channel, and he disguises her as a woman, steals some clothes, 
gets in a horse and pair for part of the way, then hides in the back of a hayrick. And as I said earlier, they finally get to the sea. He sings a love song yes. to the seal that stresses a woman, snogs her, and then throws her over a cliff. <laughs> at which point some farmhands perform a citizen's arrest because they think he's just committed murder. Yeah, not unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> so he's back in the village, he uh, goes in court. The magistrate is, of course, General Bellows, mm. who hates him. And Doolittle says, well, it's, uh, it's nonsense. I, I can talk to animals. Oh, I don't believe you. So they call as a witness the general's dog. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) quite a nice. But this feels like the this feels like it should be the climax of the film. You know, it's the point when Doctor Doolittle meets his. It's probably in that. this goes in that you know, structure of films. This is the the, the climax. This is the, the, the meeting cro- with the, the goddess. Meeting with the goddess, the crossing of the threshold, whatever that yeah, nonsense is. Yeah. Um, One thing I learned about film school about structure is it doesn't matter. <laughs> that was a it was a great bit of advice. If if the story you want to tell conforms to like Joseph Campbell's ideas, great. If it conforms to our idea, which we come up with of sort of eleven acts, great. If it doesn't conform to any of those, just write the story you want to mm. write. Yeah, and shape it the way you want to shape it. Don't worry about structure, no, because right. every story has its own structure. But this this feels like the end. Yeah, this this feels like the moment when this is the moment where he proves to the world he yeah, can talk to animals. Yeah, he's up against his nemesis, the red faced squire, and he proves that, and he wins the approval. You know, hurrahs all round, and everyone goes home and has apple pie with cheese for some reason. Ugh. But, but this, a, yeah, he, but he asks the dog. What did the general have for dinner yesterday? And he comes up with this huge, honest, this giant meal, mm. and, and and then six portions of blackberry pie. That's a lie. I only had five portions. Yeah, yeah. and it so immediately. And Doolittle's defence. Then he 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 talks another song. Mm. Oh yes, he does. About um, why do we treat animals like animals? Yeah, and so the way that um, similes. Are very negative, like um, uh, I'm trying to think. Crazy like a fox, I guess. It's, yeah, it's not used yeah, in the de- song, yeah, but, but sort of derogatory towards yeah. animals. Like, and and so all, all these way people speak, it really gets my goat. Mm. Although, again, that's that's quite clever. That's a little yeah. that's a little bit of wit. But um, it says, oh yes, I think you. Well, you're clearly innocent of murder, apparently. But in an unrelated, but in an unrelated matter, matter you're also insane. So yeah. we're packing you off to the to the nut hutch. Yeah, I'm not sure that was an entirely legal decision, to be honest. <laughs> Given they... that he's a magistrate and not a judge. Yeah. And then that's the end of the first half. That's the we're 90 minutes in. Yeah. This has been an hour and a half. Yeah. It's taken to cover this ground. It's really not that much. No, no, it isn't because. Shortly before the court case, Rex Harrison kind of claps his hands and goes, right, now we've raised enough money to go and look for the great glass sea snail. And you go, are we still on that? Because you kind of can't believe that you've been watching this film for so long, and yet they still haven't started. They still haven't got... I mean, talk about structure. This movie doesn't have any structure. It's 90 minutes of prologue. It's it's a 90-minute first act yeah. but then it ends and you think that feels like the end of the movie mm, no exactly but it's not because we've still got the, the other yeah. stuff that hasn't happened yet so there's another like we've had act one two and then another act one yes <laughs> <laughs> because when we get back from the break um, Emma is now convinced 
that Doolittle can talk to animals. Yeah. So she's now on the side of with, with Matthew and Tommy, and, yeah. and they're trying to figure out a way to break Doolittle out of prison. Suddenly, yes, it turns into a jailbreak movie. And um, as he's, I think it's as. As he's, they're going to move him from the town prison to the local asylum. Yeah, and the parrot saves the day. The and parrot saves the day by telling the horses to bolt and to yeah. not cooperate. And the monkey runs around, and they get onto a boat and they sail away. Um, and Emma joins them. Emma, yes. Emma says. Oh, what if someone were to stow away? Mm. Say, oh, well, that would be terrible. Just say that you want to come with yeah, me. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand why they're going through that weird motion of pretending that she's... I think it's meant to be cute. Again, it's meant to be cute. It's, because... Again, it's the, it's the whole bit with Matthew and Emma where they're yeah. supposed to have a relationship. But she's also in well, it's... love with Doolittle. Yeah, it's, and... a, it's the... It's the... To use somebody else's joke, it's the eternal triangle turning full circle. She's in love with. <laughs> That's a brilliant line. Where's that from? <laughs> from the Perishers, appropriately. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good old Morris Dodd. Um, but I've I've been waiting to use it for years. Um, it's um, she's in love with Doolittle, but Doolittle Rex Harrison's in love with himself, and Matthew's in love with Emma. So it is that. Yeah, yeah it's meant to be a love triangle, but yeah. Doolittle's still in love with Sophie the Seal. Quite possibly, actually. It must be the whiskers. <laughs> so they set out to sea. Hmm. Um, oh, there's Jip the dog as well. That's the other, oh, yes, the other yeah, one yeah. of the three man animals is Jip the dog. Again, diminutive of Gypsy, racist. And particularly because he never, he's, he stands on, on, the, on the front of the ship, on the bow, that's it, see? Yeah, yeah, the pointy my, end. My name, the, yeah, the sharp end. That's my, my favourite line from The Mask of Zorro almost completely forgettable movie where um, Anthony Hopkins is training Antonio Banderas to sword fight and Anthony Hopkins says oh you know how to use that don't you and um, Banderas says of course the pointy end goes in the other man <laughs> yeah <laughs> they, they know they're getting close to France because the dog can smell garlic oh yes ha ha France ha <laughs> ha the frogs yeah. God, no people goes uninsulted in this movie no, I don't think so. Except the English, because well, they're best. Because yeah, they're the top nation, yes. As an Irishman, which I am, <laughs> apparently, um, no. I like Guinness. I mean, what more evidence do you need? Uh, I like corks. That's, yeah. I've read Ulysses all the way through. Wow. That's pr- I actually I, have done that. Yeah, that's, pr- that's an achievement in itself. With the notes... They're probably useful. <laughs> to find out what's happening. Yes. Um, and apparently there are several more songs as they travel. Oh. And Doolittle explains yeah, about yeah. How, how they travel on the boat. Because apparently Doolittle goes on lots of voyages. Mm. And um, they select their destination by randomly pointing at pages in the atlas. This is something I remember from the books, and this was one of these odd moments when it's like I was sitting there watching it and went, oh, yeah, that... And I remember finding that a, a, quite a charming idea as a kid, and it is quite a nice idea that you would just drop open an atlas and go with a compass and go, right, that's where we're going. I kind of like that, but... That makes sense if you just want to travel. True. But they're, they're looking for something specific. Yeah. They are looking for the giant pink sea snail... 
in theory, there's only a finite number of places that can be. Well, at one point... It's not going to be in the North Pole. At one point, they sing a song about how they're looking for it, and Rex Harrison sings about the fact that they could go to Siberia. And there is that wanting to go, it's going to be in the ocean. (laughs) There are some places there's just no point in going. You wouldn't want to go to Switzerland to look for it. It's... As I'm thinking, there's a lot of there's a lot of lakes in Switzerland. Well, that's true. <laughs> Having been there recently, yeah, I yeah. was really shocked by how many lakes there are. Okay, maybe it's more watery. And everyone's got their own vineyard. There are vineyards everywhere. People back gardens have vineyards. Honestly, yeah. it's 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 like if Britain was run properly, <laughs> because everyone's everyone's very serious and miserable. But the trains actually run on time, yeah, and they don't have ticket barriers. They just take it all on trust. Oh, when, yeah. you have, when you wait for the man to come along and, and punch your thing for you. Yeah, I approve of that. Now, on board, Emma says she doesn't want special treatment. Oh, yeah. Says, Treat me like a man, cut to her, swabbing the deck. Yeah. And looking furious again. And doing, just generally doing, because then there's a whole... And doing women's stuff. There's a montage, isn't there, of uh, Dr. Doolittle is, he asks an octopus. He's, on, he's in a deep-sea diving yeah, thing, and Emma's working the pump. Mm. Too. Yeah, that's that really, and it goes on for a weirdly long time. Well, that sequence of him talking to an octopus, mm. and he's just got and like and his scuba gear is just a tube in his mouth. Yeah, but then they do the joke again because then he's talking to some oysters. Yeah, and it's that thing, and you kind of want to go to the film editor. You can have the oysters or the octopus, but you're doing otherwise you're doing the same thing twice. Yeah, the movie's too long. Yeah, already. <laughs> We're already into the third hour of the movie. Um, they sail into a, into a storm mm. um, and the ship is smashed to pieces but bits of it still float because yeah. it's a film and, yeah, yeah. It's a, all this is from the if book he, if he can talk to animals I can live with him yeah with, this, this, is all, this is all from the book and this is all the stuff that I remember really liking at the, and again finding charming at the time well the bit that I liked is um, the dolphin wearing his hat oh yes yeah because yeah. I thought a dolphin wearing a hat. That I approve. <laughs> mm. There's a bit as well. Uh, I think for for all his faults, at times Rex Harrison enters into the spirit of things because the dolphin brings the hat back and he puts it straight on his head. And I'm not sure that I would have been willing to put that hat right on my head. Why not? I, I just would worry it would be covered in fish oil or something. Dolphins aren't fish. Okay, fair mm. enough. What do you think that blowhole's for? Cigars. <laughs> there's actually one other thing I noticed is there's a very bad edit at one point where it cuts from a close up to a medium shot of Anthony Newley and he completely changes position. Oh, okay, I missed I miss that bit. It but... really sticks out. I think it's just because I watch these and all his friends, yeah, yeah. Are, apart from the bits that I miss. Yes. Um, and also, Doolittle is shaving with a shard of broken glass. Oh, yes, yeah. That's how hard he is. <laughs> the director gave this to Rex Harrison. Here, hold this by your throat. Right. Entertain yourself. <laughs> Fingers crossed, he'll kill himself. Chrissy, get plumber on standby. <laughs> but they, they wash up on the island, mm. um, where um, Emma already is. And it's Sea Star Island. Yeah. It's, a, it's a magical island that floats yeah. around and they are immediately set upon by what I can only call 
um, Corporal Jones's memories of Fuzzy Wuzzy. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because they, you know, it's the bone through the nose, mm. the grass skirts. Oh yeah! Wow. But that's what I mean about the the the, the joke in 1967 was obviously look at these savages. And they're not ta- savage. And then it like, turns yeah. out they're actually. Yeah. That's a thing. You know, that's yeah. a, they're relatively sophisticated. Yeah. As I say, even so, they are. Mm. They're colonial very much, yeah. but they're not. They're not savages. No, no. Except they do plan on sacrificing Doolittle and everyone else later on. Yes, yeah. Apart from that. Yeah. They're about to put on a... Actually, well, they're, they're locked up, and um, at first... Um, hang on a second. The island's drifted north, hasn't it? Yes, the island started to drift north, and um, the animals on the island are catching colds. So Doolittle volunteers to help hmm. um, and he summons a whale yes. to push the island back but the impact of the whale pushing knocks a special huge boulder we- into the volcano which can't exist on a floating island yep. because volcanoes don't work like that and that's going to set off the volcano except it doesn't it's this is a weird lift from the book again, and it's one of these bits that where the, the, they were obviously determined to cram in as much they would cram in as much stuff as possible, and even to the extent that stuff doesn't really make sense in the book. The island still the island's called Spider Monkey Island, and it still floats. There is a special balancing rock on the edge of the uh, defunct volcano, and they look at it, and Doctor Doolittle knows that if the boulder falls, it will puncture the. Um, air reservoir that's holding the island up and so ah. they have this whole conversation about oh well we hope that doesn't fall off he's later for reasons that I can't remember crowned king of the island because he's white uh, no it's, it, it isn't I, I'm going to stick up for the I'm going to stick up for the 1920s at this point I think it, I mean it is partly because he comes along and teaches them the benefits of civilization, like how to build theatres and drains and how to spell marmalade and stuff like that but, but they but, already uh, have theatres because I know. They're, they're actually in the midst of rehearsing the Merchant of Venice yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway they, they, they crown him king and they have this special sort of natural amphitheatre and when he's crowned king, it's such a popular choice that everyone shouts in delight, and it's the sound of the shouts that knocks the boulder off the cliff into the volcano. The island sinks, but because luckily the water isn't very deep at that point, it doesn't sink very far. So this is all the stuff that they've taken from the book and transferred into the film, but all they seem to have taken is the stone for mm. some reason, and it, nothing else is ever really referred to. Well, it's massively simplified, and yeah. I think that helps. True. Um, because hurry up movie. yeah yeah yes, yeah, please hurry up at this um, point so now having you know, they go from being great helpful to the island to now they're going to be burned at the stake because yes. of the prophecy from the book of the law yeah um, and Stubbins notice we haven't said much about Stubbins Tommy's little <laughs> he's done literally nothing no. the whole film there is no reason for him to be in this movie apart from the producer's thinking, oh, we need to have a child in there so that the little kids have someone to watch. In in the book, he's the narrator. This is the problem. Well, then that's perfect. I he's think, the viewpoint yeah. character instead of yeah. uh, Matthew Mugg. Yeah. I get... Charitably, Leslie Bricuse hadn't written a script before. No, I, he yeah. didn't really know what he was doing. But, come on. Hmm. 
you think, well, it worked in the book. Let's make it a viewpoint character in the movie because it's supposed to be a family film. So we want the kids to come and watch this. Mm. Uh, he's yeah, he's really excited about the prospect of being eaten by cannibals. Oh yes, yeah, that's a, that's actually not a bad joke, is it? Because he, he suddenly turns into this ghoulish. What a typical sort of film ghoulish kid who's talking about all the horrible things that could happen to them. Mm. And it's, it's all, I kind of <laughs> like that. It, it got a half-hearted chuckle out of me at that point. I think possibly just because otherwise I was going to lose the will to live. <laughs> um, there was another sort of behind-the-scenes fact that I like, that um, they, as a, they were filming on St Lucia, uh, Harrison deliberately sailed his yacht into the area where they were shooting and wouldn't move it. Just to be a dick. Wow. Yeah. 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 This is why you're killing your career. Stop being a dick stop, to everyone. Stop being you, yeah. I mean, that's bizarre, isn't it? Dick Van Dyke would have like built mm. a hospital while he was there with his bare hands. Yeah. Oh, yeah, anybody would have been... Christopher Plummer, I think, has a reputation for being a little bit of a curmudgeon. But, but there's totally the... professional and people liked working with yeah. him. Who was the other one? Oh, Edward Woodward. I imagine he would have just taught everyone uh, Welsh songs. Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, Tommy Steele is the other person, and apparently oh, that wasn't yeah. well liked, wasn't he? Because there's all the stories about singing in the rain, where um, Tommy Steele or Gene Kelly? No, Tommy Steele. When it was the th- when it was the stage, ver- the, the story goes that when it was the stage version of Singing in the Rain, all the theatre workers used to go and top up the water tanks themselves. <laughs> they used to do it themselves using uh, aqua vita. Yeah, 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 that's right. But then the punchline to that joke. Or, sto- or story is that to- on the very on the night of the last the, the last night of the production Tommy Steele comes in with presents for everybody and oh. says I know I can be a real pain in the neck it's because I want to be professional so I'm sorry if I've upset and he gave them all really nice presents if he'd said that beforehand yeah <laughs> well there you go <laughs> it's like it's like Stanley Kubrick you know what he's going to be like when yeah. you sign up for a Kubrick movie yeah <laughs> And I have sympathy for Scatman Crothers, who apparently collapsed on his knees after filming the hundredth take of something, and said <laughs> on the set of The Shining, "Mr. Kubrick, what do you want?" I thought it's Stanley Kubrick, you know. You, yeah, he'll know it when he sees yeah. it. But yeah, he, wants, he wants you to be absolutely exhausted. Did you? So ever, did you ever see the joke at the end of uh, one uh, the, at the end of a, a, an issue of Neon, where it's like this? The, the filming report for one day's worth of um, Eyes Wide Shut and it's just like all the different reasons that one day Tom, it's a scene where Tom Cruise is meant to walk in and turn on a TV and it's just uh, take abandoned TV comes on too quickly, take abandoned TV comes on too slowly, take abandoned TV comes on in a funny way, take abandoned Tom Cruise has a wild look in his eye <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's good, I'll dig it out in a minute. Thank you yeah, Eyes Wide Shut was filming main unit for a year. Mm. And weirdly, it came in under budget. Oh, well. You, you can't say he didn't know what he was doing. Kubrick was very good at budgeting. Yeah. You know, his movies took forever to make. They were always on budget. Yeah. <laughs> While all this is happening, the whale has pushed the island mm. back to where it came from so that the tribes people are going back where they came from. <laughs> Again, interesting. This is probably Nigel Farage's favourite film, isn't it? Oh yeah. No, no, it wouldn't be though because he'd want Sea Star Island to 
remain independent, separate. Yes, yeah, from and, the mainland. Yeah. From the mainland, and uh, you know, it's going to be a very powerful international mm. outpost of nothing. Then it fits back perfectly mm. with the, with the the um, the coastline, including where a tree's been split in half. Yeah, so, like, that's a nice little visual. That's I, that's that, that's one bit that that I did like. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice little joke there. And then suddenly the sea snail arrives. Yeah. Then, oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. The sea snail. We've well, yeah, only got 10 minutes after the movie. About. Hurry up, come on. And again, in the book, when the island sinks, it sinks over a particular deep spot in the ocean, which is where the sea snail lives. And, and, and in the book, the sea snail is coming out as the island comes down and it gets its tail caught. So it gets itself out of... It gets its tail out of the hole and it goes to the bay on the island where Dr. Doolittle treats the sea snail for a bruised tail. The book actually has a structure you see and, and yeah. events happen and lead on to other events whereas this yeah. is the just... sea snail has a cold even though it's a sea snail and wasn't reliant on the yeah. fact that the island was moving yeah because that's why all the animals had colds yeah uh... and also it's the cousin of the Loch Ness Monster yes which doesn't make sense so oh, see, now they can get back uh, they, they can travel back inside the sea snail's mm. shell because it's watertight it's okay. It's in the again. It's in the it's in the book. There's there's kind of a, there's a joke in the book that kind of stayed with me, and I can't decide if it's because it's funny or a bit creepy. But in the book, the sea snail asks them to take their boots off because they're all wearing hobnail boots, and when they walk around inside, they hurt the snail's back. Oh yeah. Um, but anyway, but the reason they'll go back is because it's sold to Doctor Doolittle as a chance to explore the ocean floor, and. Uh, yeah, that you can see out of the snail's shell, and they plan to they plan to go where no man has gone before, and uh, sequest DSV. Yeah, yeah, and have a look underwater. So again, I I know I keep coming back to this now, but the book look characters have motivations and things yeah. happen. I mean, but, whereas in this they just all go home, except for Doctor Doolittle, who's staying on the island because he's still wanted for murder. Yeah, no, no, he's not wanted for murder. He's wanted for being madness. Mad. Yeah. Except that five minutes later, five minutes later, well, they um, well, he also says he wants to look for the giant lunar moth. Yeah, yeah. This is the next bee in his bonnet. Mm. So he doesn't like those anti-animal no, vibes. No. Um, uh, because the giant lunar moth keeps flying back and forth between the Earth and the Moon. Okay. Yeah. So he is split up, splits up from Fiona after they sang at each other on the beach earlier. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the end of the love story, I expect. Yes. Yeah. And Matthew's relationship with her is uh, yeah, whatever. It's forgot about that. Yeah. And then the film stops. And then the well, the seals come back and they say, oh, there's oh, that's, all the yeah. animals in England have gone on strike mm. in support of Doolittle. Yeah. And that's kind of, sort of and again. People depend on animals. Mm. We need the animals, and we should treat them better. Which ties, but if you could have tied the animal strike onto the end of the first half of the, the movie. first half of the movie, you would have obviously you would have wrapped the film up sixty minutes earlier, and it might have made some more logical sense. And actually, animal strike—that sounds. Let's see that. That sounds like it might be quite good fun. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem there could be that. Once everyone has this awareness that animals are all intelligent and lots of things, then you yeah. think these animals are all basically slaves. Yeah, true. That's difficult. Mm. Doolittle finds the giant lunar moth, he builds a saddle for it, and 
flies on it back to Puddleby. Yeah. And then the film stops. And the film just ends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. It's the base. I mean, the basic concept works. Mm. The idea, you know, he's, he's a doctor who can talk to animals and he treats animals. But the things that are trying to make it into this big, spectacular epic, the, th- the reason it was made in the first place, mm. those are the things that are killing it. Mm. It's, as you say, it's, it's casting the star of My Fair Lady because that was a hit, because Rex Harrison is terrible mm. and he's an awful human being. I'm glad he's dead. There are too many songs. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic for a musical. I mean, I know. Then there are, I think, 17 songs on the soundtrack. Yeah. Two of them were cut from the movie because it was running too long, and one of them is a reprise at the end. So that's still too many. And yeah. it's, the first half is packed with songs, very little happens. The second half has fewer songs and is shorter, and is, yeah. there is more plot, and it's much easier to watch because there's stuff happening. Mm. It's the the scale, the scale of it. It's just saying, it, let's let's be big. Let's you know, it has to be giant. It has to be scrumdiddlyumptious. Yeah, it yeah. has to be supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. No, it doesn't. No, you're that all they're trying to they're trying to replicate one success over and over again, and they don't know why the first one worked. Yeah. It worked because it was a specific story. The sound of music worked for specific reasons. Yeah. And it's that thing as well, in, in, and in trying to, because you could make, and again, uh, although their books aimed at two different markets, Doctor Doolittle was a, I think there's about eight or nine books in the series. At this point, the James Bond books are kicking into gear, so there's precedent for a series of successful films based on books. Yes. So you, again, you can see why this might have seemed like a good choice, but they crush everything that might have made the film work it's so slow Mm. and too dull and there's too much there's too much stuff but it doesn't do anything it just sits there yeah and it's not even particularly interesting to look at I mean in as much as you know everything that's wrong with it The the, the, the direction is functional yeah but it's not it's so limited by trying by what they're trying to do yeah so that you have the, the musical numbers unfold in a very specific, unoriginal way. The, so the dialogue scenes are quite sort of flat and efficient. Mm. But the, the, the seal sequence is as good as an example of any uh, of the film just going wrong. Because you have that whole thing. He, he takes the seal away in a pram. Then they get on a stagecoach. Then they have to get off the stagecoach because some, some soldiers are searching for a highwayman. So they have to get off the stagecoach and get into a hay cart. And then they have thing and thing and thing. And then they have to. Then the, the Dr. Lewis has to steal the hay cart to get to the. And then they walk to the Bristol Channel. And you just think, just, oh, we need to go to the Bristol Channel. And here we are. You don't. <laughs> I don't know. You, it's just constantly this sense that the film. It's drawing out things that don't need yeah. to be drawn out. It's it's very old fashioned. I think mm. that's the problem. It's it's looking backwards when they should have been looking forwards. How can we make this old fashioned property modern? We need to think about the fact that it's the nineteen sixties. When I say we, I mean yeah. we twentieth century Fox. Um, that that viewer tastes are changing. Mm. There are such things as teenagers now. How is this going to appeal to them? Should we cast someone a bit younger as Doolittle? Someone who's not in his late 50s? 
I suppose, is it even possible that they thought that the length of the film was important to add to give us in the same way that, that films now again seem to be getting longer and longer because there's this feeling that they should offer value for money or something yeah. I wonder if the, the, the bloated running length was a symptom of the same problem that they just felt that because this was the point when cinema was struggling against television wasn't it yes um, and there was this you know you had cinema scope and all these things to try and make film technicolour to, to, to do all the things that TV couldn't and I wonder if they they just kind of assumed that a running time of what is it 148 minutes yeah that that somebody went one day all films will be made like this you know? and they are well yeah that's the irony but you know we see these now our our big budget overstuffed blockbuster extravaganzas are things like Batman versus mm. Superman and Transformers Age of Extinction and they're crap mm. but they make a lot of money yes although that's the difference yeah yeah. Yeah, well, that's a, because I suppose at the time the international market wasn't so. You, you, America was making films still pretty much for America. Mm. Yeah, although I have to say that Batman versus Superman. If in the middle of that you could have dropped in somebody singing "Never seen anything like it in my life," that might have lifted the middle section of the film. If someone had sung that in Man of Steel, the first time that Superman <laughs> saves them. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Well, I've never <laughs> seen it. <laughs> There's one final anecdote I love about the making of the movie. The location stuff in the UK was shot at Castle Coombe in Wiltshire. And stationed nearby was the SAS. Hmm. The production had built a dam to enlarge a local large sort of pond or little lake area and one SAS soldier Ranulph Fiennes thought that this was outrageous this was vandalism to the local environment so he took it upon himself to steal some explosives and blow up the dam for which he was dishonourably discharged (laughs) from the SAS wow and he was the other guy who got a knighthood Hmm. he got a knighthood for disrupting Dr. Doolittle. Richard Attenborough got a knighthood for being great in Dr. Doolittle. Rex Harrison got a knighthood because he whined and whined and he just wouldn't (laughs) f***ing shut up. Thanks to Chris for making the time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is on iTunes with more than two dozen episodes available, so please do subscribe, download and review before they take you away. But until next time, remember, close your eyes. Make a wish. Count three. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcast Network. Come and visit us at www.podnose.com. Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. 
You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com.